welcome everybody to the first episode of 2023 for the S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. Dr. Sarah Kolbeck, as of... As of November. Congratulations. (laughs) I am assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine. And I work with Andrew in the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And Andrew's here today. So I'm Andrew. I'm an assistant professor in the surgery department in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. I'm a clinical psychologist. And thank you all for tuning in today or whenever you listen to this. And I want to welcome our our guests today. Yeah, I'm really excited about today's episode. We have two absolutely wonderful humans joining us to talk about suicide prevention in the school setting. Um, But before we get to that, I just want to remind our listeners that we are going to be discussing content related to suicide and suicide prevention today. So if you are not in a good headspace to listen to content about suicide today, please feel free to hit pause and step away. And also just a reminder, after we're done with the episode or after you're done listening, just take some time to be kind to yourself. I just want to also mention that there are resources available if you are ever concerned about yourself or a loved one. First is the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline that can be reached by either dialing or texting 988. You'll be connected with a trained crisis counselor who can help you navigate whatever situation you're going through. The second resource that I'd like to share is the text crisis line, which is the HOPE line. You can reach the HOPE line by texting the word TALK to 741741. Our guests for today are Jean Gatz and Melanie Litzer from Milwaukee Public Schools. Jean Gatz is the manager of school psychology and allied health services within the Department of Specialized Services at Milwaukee Public Schools. And Melanie Litcher is the school psychologist supervisor in the Office of Psychological Services at Milwaukee Public Schools. We're really, really pleased and thankful and glad to have Jean and Melanie with us today have this great conversation about suicide prevention in school. So welcome, Jean and Melanie. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We're excited yeah, thanks to be for here. being here. Great. So I'm just going to start out with start off with a couple of general questions and we'll dive into a little bit more specific questions in a bit. But the first question I'd like to ask is what brought you both to the work of suicide prevention? Very good question. And when I was Thinking about that, I remember very specifically. I have been in Milwaukee Public Schools since 1995 as a school psychologist, and I'm a parent, and both of my students went through Milwaukee Public Schools. And I don't remember exactly when, but there, unfortunately, there was a death of a student by suicide at at one of our schools. And afterwards, I was in the school and I was talking as a parent with the support staff that was there. And we were talking about just how it had gone with, you know, coming in and supporting the students. And I was talking with the support staff and they were coming up with ideas for how they wanted to reach more kids, talk about suicide prevention, not necessarily about that child we had lost, but just suicide prevention and doing some presentations and doing the signs of suicide curriculum. And at that time, they put out a survey to the teachers asking, you know, would you be willing to have us come in to do to do this presentation in this curriculum with your students. And out of a quite a large staff, there was only about 20% of the teachers that felt they had time for that curriculum. And I remember when they told me being floored, 
because they had just lost a student. And while curriculum is very important and all the things we do in our schools are extremely important, if we don't have kids alive, it doesn't matter. So that's literally the moment. <laughs> and then I went back, I was involved with this grant and I said, I know what we need to do with all the money. And that was kind of how I became involved on a professional level. Wow. Thanks yeah. for telling us about that, Jean. Yeah, my, my story is kind of really tied in and why I became a school psychologist to begin with. In, in high school, I lost one of my good friends to suicide. And, you know, I was 13 or 14 at the time. I was very young. And now, of course, looking back, all of the warning signs were there, right? And I didn't know what to do. And I don't think anyone knew what to do, despite all of our friends and, and even adults around us, right? Recognizing those very real warning signs. And so just kind of always wanting to be that person who is available to help children, right? No matter what they're going through is what really drew me to school psychology. And then, you know, I just kind of found that my strengths as a school psychologist were in those situations that, you know, some people turn away from, right? Those really scary situations. But if I could help people in their darkest time, that's where I really, I was specifically needed. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to get involved in that at the, the district level and continue to have a passion for it today. That's awesome. That's great. And I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend, Melanie. I know it's been a long time, but I'm always, you know, just so inspired by people when they talk about their reason for the work. And so I appreciate you both sharing your stories with us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The next question is something we ask all of our guests. And that is, what is one thing you wish everyone knew about suicide? Very good question. Talking about suicide is the best way to prevent suicide. And I think that the more you talk about it, and I know just for me personally, the more I do presentations and it makes it easier to talk about, it normalizes it. It normalizes that people have struggle with feelings. And also that whole idea of mental health, physical health, it's all health. And during one of the presentations, I always go to kind of an anecdote of, you know, when somebody has maybe gone through cancer and and is in remission, you know, when they're going through that, people are showing up with casseroles and, you know, what can we do? And there's the food sign up, the meal sign up. And when it's a mental health struggle, people tend to back away rather than let's talk about this. Let's have this out in the open because it's health and we all have it. We all have mental health and whether we're having more positive mental health or more negative or challenging mental health, it's all mental health. So talking about it is the best way to prevent it. And that's what I wish everybody would keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and I absolutely agree with that. And I say what I wish everyone knew is that it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter how well educated your parents are, or you as a parent, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, how much money you have, where you live, what school you go to, or even how old you are, right? That the impact can be very, very real. And so I think, you know, I was just talking to someone the other day who was having, um, you know, working through some things with their own child related to suicide and talking, you know, and this person's in the mental health field and, you know, their spouse talking about how, well, aren't you going overboard with all of this, you know, thinking about counting our pills and making sure things are, are locked up. And she's like, no, because it, like, it doesn't matter that I have all this background and information, right? This is a very real for my child right now. And so it's, it's something that we all need to take seriously is, is what 
I wish everyone knew about suicide. Mm-hmm. And the and the the breadth of the the scope of the impact that it has across yeah the graphics and life stages and exactly exactly yeah. I mean we lose we lose students you know to suicide more often than we obviously want to and the diversity that all of those students who we've lost represent I think you know it also speaks for itself you know we have had students who come from all all races all socioeconomic statuses all religious backgrounds right it it truly does there's no one protective factor that completely buffers someone's risk, you know, and I think that that stigma is really real when it comes to suicide, even, you know, for us, like we're used to talking to children about it, but it still feels scary and we're still worried about doing the wrong thing. And, you know, another thing that I wish people knew about suicide is that having thoughts of suicide and having thoughts of wanting to not be here or a situation to be done. And the only way you see that being done is if you weren't here, that can be relatively common, right? Thoughts of suicide can be relatively common. It's the act of suicide that is not common and is that abnormal reaction to our our stressors of every day. And I think people get so scared to even talk about suicide because they think they're going to put an idea in someone's head. And that idea is probably pretty common, right? And you're not putting an idea in someone's head that didn't exist. But what going back to what Jean said is the the closing the gap there is talking about it and allowing someone to share their very real thoughts and experiences that so many people go through, right? Yeah. I'm really thankful that you brought that up that, and we've heard that's from other guests too, but I, it bears repeating as many times as we can that, you know, these thoughts are not uncommon. And so I think acknowledging that maybe makes it feel a little bit safer for people to talk about it, that you're, there's not something wrong with you. You know, there's not, you know, you, you're dealing with a situation that's, you know, obviously very distressing or there's something happening in your life, but, but you're not broken. You're not, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. So I just, yeah, appreciate you bringing that up because I think it's really important to repeat. And I think too, even with that, you know, the talking about and connecting and letting that person know it's okay. It is normal to have these feelings and these thoughts. There's also, I'm blanking on the individual's name right now, and he wrote a book and the individual, he did not die by suicide, but he did jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. What's his name? Whatever his name is, we'll try to look for it. (laughs) But what he said was he was so distressed and in so much emotional anguish and pain, he assumed everybody knew. And so in that situation, people not asking him, he was like, everybody knows and nobody cares. So there's also that piece of letting people know that it's okay to talk about. It normalizes it. Yes, Kevin Hines, thank you. But it's also that other thing of, I see you, I hear you. Because to them, they think it's so clear how much pain they're in. And by nobody asking, they feel even more alone. So it can serve many, many purposes, all extremely beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you see as kind of the factors that, place students at risk for suicide? What are the stressors at those ages that you tend to tend to see? 
kind of all over the place. And it, there's not one story to be told. We, when we look at some of the situations and try to get into more detail about some of the students we've lost in their lives and you know, was there an event kind of leading up to it? A lot of it is the typical risk factors that you hear about. Anxiety, stress, a lot of it is loss of relationship, big time, whether that's a romantic relationship, a loss of relationship in the home setting, all of those things. And we all have stressors. We all have anxiety. We all have, you know, that that all happens. But the combination of, you know, and thinking too, just the anxiety, the stress, sometimes the feeling isolated. And with COVID, I mean, there's a lot of things I think about, like, it, it seems like our numbers increased. And I don't know if the numbers increased or the access to resources changed. It's hard to tell. And also too, I'm a firm believer that while you can see and hear people in a virtual setting, not being sharing the same physical space is not the same. You cannot mm -hmm. feel a person's emotion seeing it on a screen. You can't, you know, to have that loss of physical touch or being, you know, with somebody else. And I think that was a huge stressor for many, many of our kids. And they were also in situations where they're isolated and it, it may not have been the safest situation to begin with, mm -hmm. whether their home setting or different things like that. So it's, it's hard to answer that about the major stressors, but definitely anxiety, feeling overwhelmed, not feeling supported. And a lot of our students are dealing with situations and stressors that many adults would struggle with as far as food insecurity, safety in the home, you know, having good role models for relationships, all those types of things. Mm -hmm. And I even think about too, like, you know, a lot of times we get asked about what are, you know, major stressors, for example, even that word major, I'm, I, I am learning to realize like we can't qualify what is a stressful situation to one person or not. And I think, you know, we work with youth and a lot of times reasons youth are hesitant to disclose to adults is that fear of judgment. Like you're so, yeah, I just heard it today. I, I attended a, a gender sexuality Alliance group at one of our, our middle schools. And mm -hmm. the kids were talking about how they, you know, hesitate to disclose to adults because there's this idea, you're so young, you don't know, do you know what I'm going through as an adult right now? Try and mm -hmm. handle that. And what we may view as a, a minor situation for our children is a major situation for them. So it's all relative and we really can't put that type of qualifier on it is what I'm learning. And, you know, another thing after COVID that we're starting to realize too, is that predicting someone's risk for suicide is, is really difficult. Yeah. And the way that we've always kind of conceptualized that is, okay, are they having a thought of wishing to be dead? Okay. Is that thought of wishing to be dead? You know, is that transitioning to active thoughts of killing themselves? Is that come with a plan and intent and access to means, right? It, we kind of approach it in that scaled version. And when we, you know, kind of look back on our students who we've lost by suicide, there isn't that predictable linear pattern that we can't always think that we can qualify someone's risk even, mm -hmm. let alone what puts them at risk in very understandable ways that make it easy for us to make the right decision for kids. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there's so no that, formula. There's no formula. Yeah. And we want one so badly, mm -hmm. right? As psychologists and mm -hmm. mental health professionals, but there is not. And that also makes it difficult. And so then I think where we get the biggest bang for our buck is not always like 
what exact questions can I ask a child to get the right answer to make the right decision? It's really in that preventative work and that public health work, right? Because so many of the stressors that our students face aren't like single event stressors. They're embedded in society, you know, racial discrimination, financial, economic stress. Those are embedded in how, you know, people in the city of Milwaukee are living and what they're experiencing every single day. And you can't undo that quickly enough in the midst of someone's psychological crisis, right? And I think we've learned through this work too, that there are some students, just as there are adults, there's always a chronic suicidal ideation, a thought of suicide. And I remember too, again, I can't come up with the name and I'm not gonna, but there, I was listening to a woman speak and she, I remember, and it really struck with me, because she said, every day I get up and I decide today is not the day I'm going to end my life by suicide. Mm-hmm. Her baseline was always wanting to end her life by suicide. The difference was each day she made the decision. But to her, it was like she felt better knowing that was an option and then having the strength, I'm not choosing that option today. Right. And that changed my framework because we do have students that were chronically doing risk assessments on and just how to work with that and move it along rather than I think I was making the mistake of viewing it like the student had this event, we dealt with this event, and now we're done. That's not how it works. It's not linear like that. And each person is different. And just like Melly said, one, it's not the event that becomes the stressor and the impotence. It's how it feels for the, the person. And the same thing like trauma, you can have the same event. And for one person, it's traumatizing and for another, it's not, and it's not the event. It's not the person. It may not even be their access to resources. It's just much more complicated than that. You said non-linear. I love that. I maybe made that up. That may not be that. that, No, I like the, 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 this risk and that the trajectory and people's even just developmentally across developmental stages that, that it's just not linear. I really like that mm-hmm. language for that. And I also appreciate the conversation around kind of the minimization of, of the feelings of young people. And I've heard myself saying that and, and thinking that when I hear, you know, some, a, a younger person say, I'm so stressed and this is what's going on and thinking, oh my gosh. And kind of, but it's so important to remember that in their lives that it's, you know, it's the entire world or the end of the entire world. And so that's something that I've had to kind of help myself get past and rethink is, you know, even if it seems like this is something that should be relatively minor, it it might not be in their life. And so I'm really glad that you brought that up. And we talked about this a little bit earlier about how stigmatized suicide can be as a topic of conversation. I've, so I have an 18 year old and an almost 14 year old, and I hear them talking about these issues of mental health a little bit more than I ever did as a, and maybe that's a function of the fact that their mom works in suicide prevention, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Do you think that there's more of an openness about, or among students now, young people now than there was when we were younger to talking about topics like this? Absolutely. Completely. It's awesome. (laughs) They want to talk about it and they want to be around other students who want to talk about it. They want to be around adults that are willing to hear them talk about it. Absolutely. It's a part of their life. And 
I, I think that can be very beneficial for suicide prevention in general and for them connecting with other people. We have a lot more of students um, bringing other students that they're concerned about or just using the language. And it's just not as stigmatizing for them to talk about mental health. We have groups in our schools that are all around, I have no names today, all around a, a group of students that have a mental health diagnosis and being willing to talk about it and other people that want to come learn about it and just having it be like how health should be, you know, and having those open discussions, which is very beneficial to then moving on to like, okay, coping skills and what might you do? But I absolutely see more of an openness with our students and our young people than adults continue to have. Yeah. And I see our youth wanting to be a part of the solution. Like overwhelmingly, they want to talk about it because they want to decrease that stigma and, and share their own personal experience as a way of giving permission to someone else to do the same. And I think we as adults, you know, dampen that desire in them too often out of our own fear of, well, if we allow them to talk about it, what's going to happen? If they discuss it in health class, all of a sudden, you know, it's going to become a huge issue for them. And that is actually the incorrect way of thinking, right? If we don't equip our students with the right knowledge and support to make the good decisions for themselves um, when they're not feeling mentally well or physically well, what have you, like they're not going to know what to do. And then they turn to each other. And if their peers don't have you know, good instruction and coping skills, they're not going to get good advice. And we see more and more of our schools and more and more of our youth wanting to participate in these really proactive types of groups that promote mental health literacy and understanding, whether that's, like I said, I was just observing a GSA today. They had 70 students in their middle school want to join the GSA because they wow, want to talk really about nice. and about these issues. And it's a response to losing one of their you know, peers last year to suicide. Mm. And, you know, other groups in our high schools do book studies where they read, you know, personal accounts from people with mental health, you know, difficulties or trauma, you know, experiences, and they want to talk about it. They want to learn about it. Or, you know, we have in a lot of our high schools and middle schools and even elementary schools starting this year, hope squads. So we have a number of schools already implementing Hope Squads, but this year we're getting more training for 13 more of our elementary, middle, and high schools to do Hope Squads. And that's a peer-based suicide prevention program where youth identify in their school, who would you go to out of your friends if you were you know, kind of going through it right now? And then the staff take that list of students and they say, okay, who are you know, 15 or 20 students whose names are continually popping up as really, you know, positive peer influences. And they approach that group of students and say, would you like to be a Hope Squad, you know, member? And then those Hope Squad members get training in suicide gatekeeper programs. They get training in how to recognize warning signs in themselves or their peers so that when they're in the hallways, when they're in the lunchrooms, when they're in the bathroom, and they hear someone crying in the stall next to them, they know how to respond and connect them to an adult who can help, right? They can be that first responder. And our students love it. They have just really taken it and ran with it. And it's 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 been really beautiful to see. And so yeah. 
we have it in some high schools right now. And next year, after some staff are trained this year, they'll be in middle schools and elementary schools. So that's really exciting for us to see how that kind of takes off for us and where yeah. we can continue to expand it. That gave me chills. I'm so excited to hear about that. One question I had is, how are the youth that are kind of identified as a support people, how are they, like, how do other students know then that this is like a person that they can they, reach out to? It's advertised in different ways in the school. So a lot of them will get like Hope Squad swag, you know, or the nice. Hope Squad will do monthly events in the school to kind of promote Hope Squad or promote mental wellness, right? Promote help seeking. Hey, it's okay if you're not okay here's where you can go to for help. And so they advertise it in really different and creative ways like that. And, you know, especially for some of our, our high schools, right, they really do try to, you know, tap into students who are in ninth and 10th grade, knowing that they're going to be there for years, right? It's just really taken hold in a lot of our schools in really, really positive ways. And it's so, so important to have that peer support because Again, looking back at our data and some of the students we have lost, the majority of them did not have risk assessments. So they were struggling, but they did not tell an adult or we didn't find out about it. So that was another huge push of why we wanted Hope Squad. Number one, because the students wanted something, they wanted to be proactive because while they are very willing to talk about it, they also are children, you know, if they're under 18. And so I sometimes the access to resources and they might want to go see a counselor, but if their parent is not on board, which is another reason like Hopeline is phenomenal because mm -hmm. they all know how to text and that's great. But it's also looking at that too, that, you know, we lost kids. We didn't know about them as the adults, right? There's a kid out there that did know there's a friend out there. There's a friend of a friend. So really empowering the students to again, be part of the solution and it all comes down to, too, you know, while Hope Squad is a suicide prevention program, it's much more than that. I mean, it's peer connections, it's a positive climate, it's supporting all of mental health and making connections with other students. And I think it's interesting, too, because it's like the groups, the students' names that come up, they end up being very representative of a lot of different social cliques and groups. Wow. So you have a wide variety of backgrounds and cultures and races and it's just, they all come together for kind of one phenomenal cause, you know, like, let's just be here for each other. It is, it's a great program and we're excited to expand it. And um, recently when I was presenting a little bit about our expansion, the question was asked if we could have it in all of our schools. And I'm like, well, if somebody wants to give us a lot of money, we certainly would be happy to. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. It's almost like the the adults, you know, as facilitating that space and helping kind of provide the resources and training and then getting out of the way a, a little bit so that the kids can organically let those relationships and interactions happen. How do you approach talking to kids about suicide and suicide prevention in like elementary school, for example, and younger grades? Yeah. And that there should be a lot of caution exercise with that, that, that feeling that you get as a parent and just the person is, is spot on. Right. And we don't necessarily talk straightforwardly about suicide in with students in grades like K through fifth grade, for example, even sixth grade is a little iffy depending on their development. But what suicide prevention looks like in elementary school is giving students the words to describe how they're feeling, talking about different feelings in their body so they can identify and have the language to, to seek help. And then 
really encouraging that help-seeking behavior, making sure students know the lay of the land in the school. Who can I go talk to? Who are my resources if I'm feeling you know, some type of way? Who outside of school are my people who are safe that I can talk to? So it's about encouraging language and encouraging help-seeking so that they know what to do and know what to say when, yeah. if that time ever came or if it came for their friends. Mm -hmm. It's that whole thing of working upstream, starting upstream of, Melanie's exactly right, identifying the feelings and also with the feelings, because a, a, a lot of students and especially younger students, you got your mad and you got your happy. Well, there's a whole bunch of other things in between. So talking about how your body might feel if you're frustrated versus angry versus irritated. So getting into all the levels of and degrees of emotions, and then also realizing that all emotions serve a purpose. And we also start to work with students about, and this is a little bit older students, but elementary, it could be upper elementary, as far as looking at what thoughts were you having along with that feeling? Because it's not just the feeling, you're having some thoughts and what kind of self-talk is going on. Right. And then looking again, like Melanie said, who are, who are the adults you can go to? And what are some coping skills you can do that might even help your body calm down or help you change some of your thoughts that might help you change your feeling. I mean, all those things combined is all really important work upstream yeah. and just the social skills and socio-emotional learning. So while we may not call it suicide prevention, it is because right. that's all part of mental health, you know, and we always, you know, tend to go to mental health being mental health challenges. No, it's not. We all have mental health. That's part right. of us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's really cool. And I think, you know, it's equipping younger kids, you know, as you talk, as you mentioned, Jean, you know, kind of moving upstream, equipping kids to be able to talk about their feelings then later in life as adults and being able to name those things and understand what's happening in our bodies. I think that's just, it's so cool and it's so important. It's going to serve them well far on down the line, I think. Well, in a big statement, the I feel statement, teaching kids, <laughs> I feel blank when blank and I want blank. You feel what? So you're naming it. Why do you feel it? And what are you asking the other person to maybe do differently to help you not feel that way? And not saying that, you know, all your feelings are caused by anybody else, but just what's, what do you need different about the situation or what might help? Also helps because a lot of times we have students that they're able to identify why, what they're feeling, but not necessarily why they're feeling it. So just again, all those communication skills that later, if they're having something that they're, they're struggling with and feelings that aren't going away and it's not due to a specific situation, they can still verbalize that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I'm a parent and I know there are hopefully parents that are listening to this and even not necessarily just parents, but, but adults that have kids that they really care for. One of, I think, a, a really difficult situation that I've encountered as a parent is feeling concerned about my child and not quite knowing what to do, even working in this space. Because I think when it's your child or a child that you really care about, there's a level of fear there that you wouldn't have if it was another person. So what advice would you give to adults, parents, caretakers, aunts, uncles, coaches who are concerned about a young person in their life? Great question. And I've said numerous times in my household, it'd be really helpful if we had a school psychologist here when I'm the parent, because it does and it, a lot of that. And the training goes out mm -hmm. the window when totally. it's your child and personal situation with one of my children of, I heard myself saying the words, 
like, well, you're not thinking of doing something stupid. I'm like, what am I saying? I know. It up. But it's so hard. You just move out, you correct it and move on. So, I mean, really the biggest piece of advice is you start to get that pit in your stomach. You start to get that little worry. Do not wait. Ask. Ask. You are never, it's never going to be a bad conversation if you ask. If you say, you know, I'm really, I, I'm concerned about you. Are you thinking of ending your life? They're either going to come back with, I don't know, and you have to ask again, or maybe, or I'm not sure, or like a no. Any of those responses lead to a good conversation. Because even if the response is, no, not at all. Why are you asking me that? Then you can give them some feedback. I've noticed these changes. I've noticed that you've said this. You used to do this. You're not doing this. Let's talk about it. What's going on? All of those things are you saying to the other person, I care about you. I see you. I am here. No matter what it is, if it's you are thinking of ending your life by suicide or you just had a, a rotten day and you want to talk about that too. So that is the biggest thing. Ask, ask, ask. It's it's so important to have that conversation and let that other person know that you're there and you see them. That would be my biggest piece of advice. And I think not letting that the first time you have a conversation about suicide be the time when you're worried, right? Mm. It, talking to your child and starting to normalize you know, that everyone is not mentally well all the time, right? That your reaction to the stressor is normal and okay. And guess what? You can be okay soon as well. Mm-hmm. And talking to them about suicide, not shying away from the topic. If you've had, you know, someone in your family who you've lost to suicide or a friend of theirs, you know, from school has lost to suicide or what have you, when it comes up, you know, really know that that pit in your stomach is a normal thing. Everyone has it. Even the most experienced psychologist has that pit in their stomach, but knowing that that's a normal response, work through that and still have that conversation with your child anyway. You know, one thing that I've, you know, vowed to do as a parent is take my child to suicide prevention month activities around the community, right? Like just let her see, and my son is young, he, you know, wouldn't get it yet, but let her see all of these people who are there and committed to making sure she's okay and that mom's okay and her brother's going to be okay and what have you, that there's people out there who care and are are trying to take steps to make sure that everyone feels that way. And so just normalizing these conversations before you even get concerned, I think is a really big piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I think we get so caught up and hesitant to talk about suicide because of that stigma. But if you were to compare it to physical health, like how many of us have parents who are doctors, right? Not many of us. And does that mean that you as a mom have to know how to diagnose every illness in your child or know the exact medication to prescribe or therapies to to use after? No, there are experts out there for that. What you have to do as a parent is make sure your child gets to that expert, gets to that help. That is your job, right? It's not, you don't have to know everything about it. You just have to have to be open to your child, right? I love that. Because I would have misdiagnosed every flu and little sneeze that my (laughs) child has now. So that is not my responsibility, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the questions I had as as Jean was talking that Melanie, you're, what you added kind of answered that for me is like wondering if a reason that parents maybe 
or, or caregivers, you know, guardians don't ask when they're concerned is like, what do I do if they say yes? So if you had a parent that was asking that, like, well, what am I supposed to do then if they say yes? It sounds like Melanie, what part of what you're saying is like connecting to a professional at that at that point. Any other thoughts about that? What you would tell that parent? A lot of it is in the whole program QPR question, persuade, refer. You know, you're asking the question, and I'm gonna shorten this greatly, but are you thinking of of killing yourself? The persuade just having them stay with you. You need to persuade and give them the hope. Where's the hope? You know, it's going to, I'm here with you. We're going to get you some help. And then the refer is getting to resources. And Hopeline National Suicide Prevention. Experiences, I, I was speaking with a friend of mine who's a parent and her son was in a different city. She had, and she was worried about him. Didn't know exactly where he was in the city to contact the authorities. National Prevention Suicide Hotline stayed on the phone with her during the plane ride. They talked to people about what she needed to do about and having her down and what, I mean, all those things. So a lot of the resources may not necessarily be, oh, you already have a, a therapist lined up or you already have a counselor or things like that. But just having those two, the Hope Line and National Suicide. And I, you know, calling them and saying, I'm with somebody right now. I'm not sure what else to say. You know, can you help me out? So that would be a lot of it. But yes, a lot of it is just getting to somebody else that warm handoff. Mm -hmm. So as a parent, you know, you're with the child and it's your child and they say, yes, if you don't know what to do, you can call 911 mm -hmm. and say that, you know, and figure out, you know, or if it's during the day, is there somebody else and get, you know, calling the pediatrician, all those types of, of things. But those two hotlines, I, I think are phenomenal for that, especially the text line, because as we know, it's often easier to text real quick your emotions without the the voice involved and things like that. And it's, it sometimes feels more immediate. So those are resources that I would suggest. Melanie, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And, and even though you are a mess inside because no parent that would shatter their world to hear that, right? But take it as a good sign. They told you, right? They disclosed to you. Now you know you can do something about it. Whereas if you didn't ask, you wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. and do your best to stay calm because that child is scared too about these thoughts that they're having, right? Odds are they don't want that to be the outcome. That's the only outcome they can see right now. And so you need to stay calm as an adult and reassure them that, you know, mommy doesn't necessarily know what to do right now, but I know people who we can call. I'm going to call them because I know we can get help. And I know this is, we can be okay. And we're going to figure this out. And I'm here for you, right? Reassure them. Don't freak out because mm -hmm. that could scare them more. And even though you are very scared and that is a very legitimate feeling, you don't want to put that on your child. You want them to feel like help is on the way. And I think that's why QPR is also important. And when we've done parent workshops around question, persuade, refer, practicing, practicing, practicing. And when I'm practicing and I'm practicing saying to someone, are you, are you thinking of killing yourself? Practicing with my arms open. My thoughts can be, oh my gosh, I don't know what they're going to say right now and freaking out, but a very neutral, accepting face. And then the first thing I always say, thank you for telling me. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for telling me. 
and say, you know, I'm happy you told me and we're going to figure this out. And the whole it is okay to say, we are going to figure this out. I'm not sure what we're going to do right now, but I am here for you and we will get this figured out. And of course, never, 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 ever, ever, ever leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Ever. Right. And means restriction is so, so important. Mm-hmm. I was messaging Andrew as you were talking just now, Gene and Melanie, that I was, I'm getting choked up. Melanie, when you said that, you know, hearing that as a parent is, you know, kind of earth shattering and world shattering. It it really, it really truly is. And I think, you know, the information that you're presenting to us today is just, it, I know it's going to help parents get through this situation, this, you know, situation that feels like it's the worst possible moment of your life. You know, I just really just appreciate all of the wonderful, practical, really accessible things that we've talked about today that that parents and, and adult caregivers can do for kids. It just really is. It's, it's a gift. So thank you. Thank you for allowing us to talk about it. It's important. And as we all said, talking about it helps. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is hard work right? Whether you're a parent, you're in mental health field, you just care about people, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's hard work. There's no easy answer and we can't all do it alone. And that kind of pressure we put on ourselves to silo ourselves and feel like it's all on our shoulders is, is you know, our, our brain's playing tricks on us and it's just not true. And so, yes, thank you for allowing us to, to share with you guys today. And mm-hmm. We appreciate it. Yeah. I I did have a a question that I'm still hung up on. And so, Sarah, you you had asked earlier about suicide prevention in like elementary age kids. And it sounds like Melanie and Jean that a lot of what you described is kind of this universal prevention in terms of promoting emotional self-awareness and expression, emotion regulation. I'm wondering like, and I'm guessing that the answer is it depends, but, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, like, is there an age range where you feel like it's appropriate to define suicide? Because I'm just, I'm wondering how to, or, or whether to do that, it almost coming, feeling like, you know, some people when they get really upset, handle it like this. Are, are you wanting to do that? Like, so any, any thoughts about that? poorly worded question. <laughs> and I mean, one thing that we always think about from a school-based perspective is a lot of times when we're talking about suicide prevention and education, right? Whether that's, you know, true suicide prevention where we're talking about suicide or just kind of building those skills that would, you know, help lead up to suicide prevention. You know, we're mm-hmm. picturing ourselves in front of a classroom of 30 kids. And that gets a little sticky when you're talking to 30 kids who are all a little different developmentally, have different backgrounds and different experiences on how you would approach that through the whole group. If you're approaching with a whole group defining suicide and talking about it very explicitly, generally we'll start that around seventh or eighth grade, right? And sometimes sixth grade, but it depends on the group itself. And so there's a little bit, you know, more questions that we might ask before we do that. But you know, we're also doing, quite frankly, suicide risk assessments on four-year-olds, on five-year-olds who are talking about wanting to, to end their lives. And so on those in those individual instances, we will get really explicit with mm-hmm. not examples, but saying like, 
you know, some people who are describing feeling the way you're feeling sometimes think about wanting to go to sleep and never wake up, right? Do you think about that? Or sometimes they, you know, talk about wanting to actually do something to themselves to hurt themselves. Do you think about that? Would that result in you dying? What does dying, you know, how, how would you describe dying, right? Like we try to work through all those developmental differences with them and it gets really challenging for four or five and six year olds, but we absolutely have those conversations on an individual level when something comes up mm-hmm. with them. And with the younger students, sometimes with the, the risk assessments, whenever a student makes a threat, we're doing a risk assessment. We want to make sure, and and sometimes, you know, it is ending up, you know, that it's mild risk or, you know, something comes out like, well, I didn't mean that I was frustrated. Again, that is a phenomenal conversation. Okay. Let's talk about how you were frustrated. When you said this, I felt very worried because when you're saying you want to end your life, that means you wouldn't be here tomorrow, you know, and just really kind of explaining what that means. And then having a conversation of, okay, what would be something different to say, you're so frustrated. You wish this class, you never had to go to this class again. What would be something, you know, that really gets at it. So not at all minimizing the threat, but making sure what the level of threat is and having that conversation and also still kind of building in some education around the feeling you're having and the frustration behind it. Mm-hmm. And we do the QPR trainings with students. We have done it as low as sixth grade, but definitely in our high schools where we're giving them the words and we're using those words. And like Melanie said, you know, it's starting off with, you know, are you feeling so sad that you wouldn't want to be here anymore? Going to sleep and not waking up. We really make sure to repeat two things about that. If someone tells you this and they ask you to keep it a secret that you never, ever do, that's mm-hmm. not a secret you keep. And I go again, back to the physical health aspect. If somebody fell down on the ground with a heart attack and said, please don't tell anybody. You're not going to step over them and not tell anybody. You're not going to do the same thing here. We're coming to the top of the hour, which has absolutely flown by. And I just want to express my gratitude again to both of you, Jean and Melanie, for being a part of this conversation today. As an MPS parent, I am proud and thankful that we have folks like you in the district taking care of our kids. So thank you so, so very much for what you do. Thank you for allowing us to be on the podcast and also all the work that you guys are doing in the community, because certainly our children don't only exist in the four walls of of our school and neither do their families. And so we're really thankful for for your partnership in this work as well. Absolutely. There's a lot more work to do and we're looking forward to it. Good. So just want to remind folks to take a couple moments for yourself after you're done listening to this today, go for a walk, call a friend, do something that's nice for you. There are resources available if you are concerned about yourself or a loved one. Again, 988 is the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And the Hope Line is available by texting the word TALK to 741-741. I'm really excited about next month's episode two. We're going to be talking with Dr. Joyce Chu about culturally appropriate suicide risk assessments. She is a scholar from California that's going to be talking with us. So stay tuned for that episode. And thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew. Can I just put one more plug? Like that episode, I'm so excited about Dr. Chu coming. She is like the person that wrote this assessment tool. And so I think it's going to be another really rich conversation. So wanted just to express that that excitement and encourage everyone to, to listen to that episode also. But thanks again, everyone, to our listeners and to our guests, Melanie and Jean. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.